past couple weeks, we have been taking what we're calling saints and scoundrels, which are kind of biographical snapshots of characters in the Bible. We've been sort of setting it up and prompting it this way by saying, you know, there are, there are sure are an awful lot of characters, side characters, rabbit trail narratives, uh, things that you kind of go, why, why is that there? Uh, doubling back in that way and asking that question, um, you know, we, we are confronted with the reality that God actually puts in front of us a lot of the times sort of, um, uh, what's her name, everything that rises must converge. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You see it right there in front of my face. Modern? Nope. Yeah. Well, kind of. <laughs> An author? Yep. Oh, goodness. Why did I say? Flannery O'Connor. Thank you. Flannery, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she Irish, probably. Who knows? We can edit this out, Paul. Thank you. Um, but it's that type of harsh grace. Um, and, you know, I think she kind of comes to prominence as a writer by sort of reminding Bible readers that often grace is, is quite harsh. It's quite dark. It's quite strange and odd the way God uses people and characters and stories uh, for his glory. And so we've been looking at David, David's line, Amnon. We saw that whole story. We saw Mordecai. We saw someone who's a, more of a scoundrel in the camp of Amnon and someone who's more of a saint in the camp of Mordecai. And each have very difficult truths to hold on to. Their lives are complicated, even the good ones, like David, you know, who we are told explicitly to imitate. He's a man after God's own heart. We should be like David in many ways, and yet David has just this... Uh, Tremendous life of sin. Um, he has blind spots. Um, and and the, I guess the thing I'm trying to get at is that we can take this approach to ourselves and to life and to Bible characters that there is black and there's white. Um, now, in regards to justification, that's absolutely true. There is holiness and there is sin. But the world is marred with sin from Adam on. And so to look at people's lives and to have this sort of frustration that you're not like them, well, take another look. Yeah, you're, you're not like them. I, I'm not like David, and by God's grace, I haven't murdered anybody. You know, like, that's not on my record. It's on his. But I'm also called to imitate him, and my faith is not up to his faith in many, many ways. And so it's that balance of going, where can I learn from Scripture? What could I try as a character in God's world to imitate? What can I try to avoid? And that's the pattern of wisdom, by the way. Proverbs says, look, here's the path of wisdom is open your eyes and look and pay attention. Pay attention to these stories. Often in the Bible, the, the, the common rebuke is remember, remember, remember. And then the writer, the prophet, or the, uh, the one writing the epistle will launch into a story and say, have you heard the story since you were a kid and you, you took the wrong lesson? You, why didn't you pay attention? Careful, more careful attention to the story. Um, has that thought of being a character in a story, has that prompted any thoughts in you over the past few weeks? Chelsea and I sort of, it prompted conversation in us this week. How about you guys? Anything? It's okay if it hasn't. <clears throat> I think the conversation for us it prompted was that often it feels like the world is just pushing us to think of ourselves as primary character. Social media in particular is like, hey, you can be your own publisher, so you can tell your story, and you can even have your own soundtrack if you want to. And you're always sort of publishing and editing yourself to be the primary character in the narrative. And I think it's wise to look and see yourself as what kind of character you truly are, but also to understand that in, in God's economy, most of these characters, they're, they're side characters. Christ is the main character. They're side characters. They're either good side characters, they push people along, or they're sort of antagonistic side characters. Um, so it's a great place to find ourselves. Today we're going to look at the story of Job. Job's an incredibly long book, so we won't go through it that way, but we'll do sort of snapshots, drawing questions, and that's what we want from this text, is that uh, things that we see as a group, not just me, I'm going to kind of be cruise director here a little bit, um, but as a group, what do we see? What can we draw out that we're seeing God in a new way from this text in Job? So if you've got your Bibles... Open up to the book of Job, part of the wisdom literature. And if somebody will 
raise their hand when they get there. Read verses 1 through 3. You got it? Thanks, Renee. Whenever you're ready, 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Okay. Short biography, first three verses, what do we know about Job? Kind of set up the scene for us. Blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. Ezekiel calls Job a righteous man. So from the gate, everything from here on out, chapter 1, verses 1, what are we supposed to look at? The lens through which this man acts, well, we're at least told that he's a righteous man. So it can be deduced that this is how a righteous man's going to act. Okay, so this is, this is kind of like blinkers on your dashboard. Pay attention how this guy's going to act. This story is for you. Good morning. What else do we know? He's righteous. He's wealthy. He's got a ton of mouths to feed, right? A lot of animals, a lot of children, um, a lot of people. It seems that Job in the Septuagint, so the Greek translation um, of the uh, sort of there's Latin and Greek um, of the Old and New Testament. It's said, but we don't see it in our Bibles, that Job um, is identified with the character of Jobab. You see that in Genesis 36, verses 33 through 35. You can still sort of see that reference. And the idea here, and many people probably have sort of suspected this from the kind of character that Job is and why his story matters and the amount of wealth that he has, is that he is very likely an Edomite king. Okay? He's very likely an Edomite king. So he wasn't necessarily a Hebrew, but he was descended of the Edomites because the land of Uz is likely a part of Edom. You can see that in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. Um, Eliphaz, who's his friend in the story, is a Temanite. Teman was one of the great chieftains of Edom. Genesis 36 tells us that. So these are his friends. Bildad was a descendant of Abraham through Keturah, Genesis 25, and they all settled in the east where Edom was. Um, so all of these characters that we get, we get, you know, the famous Job's friends, these guys seem to be connected with Edom. So put that into the categories that we have so far. If he is the Edomite king and his house has fallen, which we're about to see, then what interest do his friends have um, in coming and giving him that counsel? Right? It seems it's more than just private counsel of friends, but it could be more even political counsel for someone who needs to be restored into their kingdom, someone whose life and cattle and riches had greater impact than just his private uh, money purse. Does that make sense? So if he's the king of Edom, and they are attributing to him that he's disobeyed the Lord and all this uh, disaster has come upon him, it benefits them for him to repent. It benefits them for, for Job to get back into the, the wealth and, and kind of prosperity of his kingship because they are in his kingdom. Does that make sense? So if, if that's true, which I'm not saying that it, it is, it's, this is kind of what most people tend to think is right, then there's another layer to their advice to him. But really the big part about the story, the part that we can imitate, a lot of it comes heavy in the first few chapters. Somebody read chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. <coughs> each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise, and he would rise early in the morning offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. All right. So we can spend a little bit of time here says that Job had several children, 
and that seems that each of them on this on their day it doesn't necessarily explain maybe a birthday or a certain uh, special event day, but that Job would go and offer sacrifices. Why? What does it What does it say? Because they had sinned. You're shaking your head. What did, What did it say? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Let's talk about that. <coughs> what is that about? Well, just in case. I mean, he just wants to make sure that our repentance is there. Um, because oftentimes we sin in our hearts, right? We don't. Sure. Maybe it's not even a visible or something like that, but we have a you know, judgmental thought or a bad thought about somebody. It's hard that we don't sin. Right. It's like anybody goes through the day without sinning. Right. It's not, at least in a measurement against Christ. That's right. Yeah, a lot of the liturgy that we talk about in our, our confession of sin portion is the search us and know us, Lord. Reveal any wicked way among me because I can't see with the holy eyes of God. Um, so repenting of the things we know of and repenting of the things we don't know of. Job's applying that, I'm assuming to himself, but he's applying it where? To his family. His family. So let's talk about that for a minute. That's an interesting thought. Here we have someone offering a sacrifice on behalf of, of someone else, um, an apparent no less. What does this tell us about Job? We're already told he's a righteous man. This is the illustration. It's one of the first that he's a righteous. In fact, most of the book doesn't even talk about too much more about him being righteous, except for these first few verses. When God says Job is a righteous man, this is one of the first things that, that he's described as doing. And it describes his fatherhood, his parenting. Why do you think that's so wise? Why do you think that's so righteous, what he's doing here? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Um, well, God sent his son to die for our sins, and the ultimate sacrifice. And so in doing that for his children and almost praying, on their behalf um, and how we pray for our children even though they haven't either repented or come to us and said they're sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nailed it. Um, and, and this is an amazing place to see that so far back in the Old Testament. Many people believe that Job was one of the, uh, one of the very first books. Um, so Job would have been a contemporary with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you're seeing gospel behavior and explicitly told that's that's what righteousness looks like that's what righteousness looks like so sacrifice on on behalf of another let's talk about that for a, a minute more is job guilty of any sin we're not even told if any sin has committed he's doing it just in case but would he be guilty if his children did sin Okay. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, their sin is not his. Right. Right. So what you see here is an is an instance of a father not taking the blame for sin, but taking responsibility for it. That dynamic right right there is pictured over and over and over again. As soon as you see it, as the, when the coin drops, that's in the garden. Where, where, the, where God comes in and sacrifices to clothe Adam and Eve. That right there is uh, it, it, just that pattern, story after story. And ultimately, we only see it kind of in its clarity at the cross, where it's not I'm taking your, um, I'm taking your blame necessarily or I'm taking the fault. Um, it is I am taking ultimate responsibility for that. You belong to me. I'm, I am obligated, I am willingly obligated. It was for the joy set before Jesus Christ. That's what we're told, right? We're told of his motivation. It's the joy set before him that he would endure the cross. Father, is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I'm, I'm going to take responsibility. And that's why we're told Job is a righteous man. Um, let's keep going on. Somebody read the next set of verses, 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Hmm. A bit of a strange passage to see a dialogue between Satan and, and the father. And then to see the motives and, and really the allowance that God gives. Um, I feel like I moved on a little too quickly. I, I meant to ask one question about the previous point on responsibility. How might that change us practically if we are to imitate the righteousness of Job in taking responsibility for others' spiritual lives while not necessarily taking the blame? What might, what might that look like as a parent or a, or a friend? a missionary, a Christian. I thought we'd be more diligent in um, expressing our faith. Um, kids, they probably see it, but that we would be just more disciplined, I guess, in making sure that they understood um, yeah. the faith they're growing up with. I think more in friends, I guess, now, because you know, I think that's a harder area, especially if they're not believers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you know, a lot of times it's just easier not to address it. Or even family, you know. Right. Siblings, cousins, whatever. Absolutely. We talked about this recently. It's a lot of people want to have the hard conversations with people in their last days of life. Yeah. Instead of having them earlier on for fear of Yeah, which is more awkward to not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or to hear, hey, can I talk to you about, you know, like, I'm with you though. It's terrifying with with family. Um, Yeah. How about our church, our congregation? Our covenant of grace. We're imitating the covenant that the Lord has you know, has blessed us underneath, we have also covenanted together with one another. I, I'm the most recent covenanter uh, last week. Um, but how about that? To say in our prayers, you know, when we come in to pray, I'm not necessarily taking on the, the guilt of sin, some of the congregation, but there's certainly times in my prayer when I need to say, Lord, that, that's, this is my house. This is my, this is my family. This is what's going on. Lord, please forgive me. You know, please deal with me um, according to how we're behaving, especially as pastor. I mean, I need to pray like that a lot. But as dad, I need to pray like that. Um, uh, I, I think there's, there's many ways. I mean, we're, we're sort of in a, uh, a covenant with our nation, as it were. You know, and you can see this sort of in the way that uh, I think Scripture teaches us to pray. I mean, Paul in the, in the beginning of all of his letters he's like I think I thank God for every one of you and I hold you in my heart in my prayers you know or I'm rebuking you for this uh, and I'm hey I'm coming to you as an apostle right I, I I'm going to seek some reward from you he's he's tied to them in this certain way um, and he's discharging that ministry and sometimes those hard words and rebukes by saying I'm responsible I am responsible here and in an age where we say that everyone should just be an individual and I don't have to take responsibility and I can even live a private Christian life that's okay, the Bible says, no, you can't. You are in covenant with these people. And in some measure, you're not taking on their guilt, but you are taking on uh, the, the headship of, of this ministry. I don't think a parent can, on the, on the day before the Lord, say, hey, that was, that was his sin. I had nothing to do with it. No, no, that you are, you are the dad, you are the mom. Um, a, a remarkable 
simple truth, but I think it has sort of an explosive applications from this text that we are told this is a righteous man and why because he does this it's a, sort of a, like you know like a joke that cliffhangers usually like something you didn't expect that's what this is is why is job righteous you expect his great prayer life his great tithing whatever and it's not as he prays for his kids he sacrifices for his kids and not even that they're guilty is that lord they might be but but deal with me on their behalf deal with me on their behalf Wrestle with, wrestle with me on their behalf. Um, and Job, Job knows that he can't. We see that later in chapter 19. Um, that's because he's a wise man as well. So we read the, so <laughs> we almost need to read it again. We read the section about uh, God uh, dialoguing with Satan. What's, what's that about? Why do you think the text is giving us this insight? Uh, and doesn't just give us that all this calamity falls on Job. That would be another story in, in itself. But we get this intro that the calamity is allowed. The calamity is coming by the hand of Satan. The calamity is fully in God's eyes to a righteous man. What's the point in that? We know how it will end, but Job doesn't. Okay, yeah. We know how it will end, but Job doesn't. Is that comforting to you as you read? No, <laughs> it's not. Renee says, yes, you said no. Why do you say no? Yeah, you read the rest of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but she has a point. She has a point because that is the position that we are in at this moment as Christians. We know how the story ends. It, it changes the way you read the story because you go, oh, I know the ending. It doesn't diminuize. Does it? Yes, through. that's right. But <clears throat> the tiny flicker of hope can not be extinguished. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would have been probably more endurable for Job had he known what Daphne had read, <laughs> right? If he had maybe uh, had, had a little insight. I said that you would. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess to, to the point I would raise is we, that's our inheritance. We know. We know that our Redeemer lives. We know that. Christ has conquered sin and death. We know that we'll be resurrected. How would that change? I mean, yes, I don't think we walk around uh, unfeeling to these, the suffering in the world and the suffering that comes to ourselves. But would that change the way that we walk through it? No? Anybody? Say yes. Yeah. Yeah, if hope, if, if hope means anything, I think it means that. If hope means anything, it's, it's that I know that this will be okay. And not, the difference is, is I think Job's faith is a bit greater than ours in that he said, I don't know how this is going to work out. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know. He didn't know he was going to get back double. God didn't make a deal with him. This is, this is tough. But he has, he has shown himself to us. And Jesus has explicitly said, if you come in my name, people will persecute you. If I took up a cross, you will also take a cross. But nevertheless, take heart, I have overcome the world. You will be with my, me in my Father's house, right? I'm sending you the helper of the Spirit, right, to encourage you, to bless you. Um, he testifies uh, with groanings too deep for words. He, heart, he cries out in you, Abba, Father. I mean, we have a lot of help in suffering that it seems that Job didn't, at least in his place in the story, is different from ours. It's remarkable. Um, anything else? What is this insight to Satan's discussion with God due to readers of the story? Hey guys, come on in up here at the front. So Satan has no power apart from what God allows. That's true. Is that really comforting in this story? I, I would say, I was going to say that exact thing. In this, in this story, what he allows is awful. Any other thoughts there? I think that's kind of the point. I think you're both right. I think God has Satan on a leash, and I think that part of the... It's a lot longer leash than... Yeah, it's yeah. pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that the amount of suffering 
is for no purpose. That's the whole thing, right? Everything happens for a plan. Yeah. And so, like, whatever length of leash God decides to give to Satan, right. it's for a reason. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't even get to know it, though. Yeah, we don't right. get to know it. You don't get to know it, but you do get the book of Job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yay. Anything else from that? Here's, Here's where that joke is kind of comforting. You do get the book of Job. And what I marvel in is for and I don't see this in anywhere else in Scripture, where you get a very explicit revealing to us where God says, look, if I just let Satan run crazy, and if I were just to let the destroyer run wild over your life and do whatever he wants to do, I can still turn that out for you, good, for your good. I can still turn that out in a position that was two times better than you were before. Now that is a difficult pill to swallow because their children died. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think God's making light of that at all. But I don't see anywhere else in Scripture where I know, and I've been you know, in church a long time, and I sort of know this like Christianese, like it's just going to be okay. Like these vague things, like as long as life's generally okay in the time being, I'm kind of okay saying stuff like that. Like, you know, it's all for God's sovereign plan and, and all this stuff. But in an explicit statement, I think this is why the story is not Job was a righteous man and his kids died. No, it was Job was a righteous man and God allowed this to happen is a statement of the Lord to the reader that, I can, let, I can let him off his leash, so to speak, and there's nothing you need to be afraid of that I cannot absolutely turn for good. And in other words, I think this is an example of, of, of God. I'm saying, like, look at how bad this can be. It's not the normal example, right? It's not the normal example, but look at how bad this can be that I still can redeem. Look at the cross, right? I can, I can let the Son of God come down and be mocked, whipped, scourged, pierced, crucified, uh, rejected by his people, and still bring that out for good. And then in my life, hold on one second, in my life, the slightest sufferings, the the slightest sort of mysteries in my mind, just almost, you know, they can put you in shakes. I got to believe that's why that's here. It's why, you know, Literally, Daniel going into the mouth of the beasts and Jonah going into the mouth of the whale and Hebrews going into the mouth of slavery. I mean, these stories are for us to see and God to repeatedly say, do you not remember what I can do? If you're walking around terrified at Satan or suffering, don't forget that I could let him go even to these ridiculous links with Job and still turn it out for your good. I think that's our inheritance. If our inheritance is, is almost anything in Christ, it's hope. It's got to be. That's why the, the church is a living, uh, excited um, uh, people with a mission of God, even in the midst of pain and suffering. It doesn't crush us. Um, it certainly hurts, but it doesn't crush us. Jace, you had a question? Well, no, I'd say also the book of Job is also a pretty solid rebuke of the prosperity gospel because we hear very clearly that he was righteous and yet terrible things happen. So if bad things happen to you, it doesn't mean that, oh, it's only because you did something wrong, not hits. And if you're good, good things happen. Right. Directly is disproven. Yeah. Yeah. Curse God and die. Right. Uh, we, we saw that too, right? that there is this sort of direct link between his righteousness and his prosperity. It could also be seen as God does have that uh, rope around Satan. Oh, yeah. And that comfort that you know, he controls him, you know, when there's a lot of, well, you know, Satan is out there to devour, forgetting that, you know, God has control over Satan. He has not won this world. You know? Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, granted, the rope was long there, but, um, you know, 
He also gave one a very short rope. Yeah. I mean, I, does everyone feel that way? Is everyone kind of clear on like how how Satan is spoken of in the Bible? It's not just like omnipresent. He's not all powerful. I heard uh, we have a we have a friend with some really bad theology and goes to a bad church and. Everybody has those friends. Um, and she was kind of telling us recently that she has a family member who believes that Satan is, like, locked up in their attic room. And I was like, that's really good. Lock him in there. Like, that's great. Just keep, like, that's pretty good for the rest of the world. Um, just leave him there. Just move. Um, in their personal uh, Yeah. I, like I said, it was, uh, it's bad theology. All right. So let's talk about pain and suffering for just talk about pain and suffering a little more. How about that? That's what I woke up for. Yeah, I know, right? Well, read verses 13 through 22. This is still in chapter 1. Somebody's got that. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Yeah. Righteous man. I mean, I can't. I can't read that and really try to think it through and process it without going, what? You know. To be able to have the spiritual fortitude, to have that amount of loss as described, not only your things, not only your kingdom, kind of seems like he has this sort of rule and reign over people, livestock, livelihood, but your children. And then to have the spiritual fortitude to say a wise statement like that, like just taking that statement as a piece of literature echoes down through history because it's, it's so profoundly accurate, like bluntly accurate, and yet devastating. Naked I came into the world. If I leave it naked... Blessed be the name of the Lord. Which is a statement of, if not anything, just high grace. Just the acknowledgement of exactly what we read. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Why do you, you know, if you, if you received anything by grace, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It's like, why are you clinging on to it as, as if it wasn't a gift in the first place? God's gifts are good. I want to hold on to them. <laughs> Um, but a profoundly righteous thing to say. Again, not easy. I'm not saying that, but I, I did, studying for this, it, it, it did catch me in my prayer life, just to share this with you guys, because I, I think it's healthy. I almost couldn't say that out of my mouth, praying. I, I almost couldn't get to that point. Um, and I don't know if my heart was in that point, but of going, Lord, if you took my stuff, blessed be your name. And if you took my marriage, blessed be your name. If you took my kids, and I, I'm like almost like I said, I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. And again, I don't know that I'm I'm there in my faith. I, that's a I could say it physically. What was going on with that man that he could say such a thing? Um, why is it that God says, "Oh, there's a righteous man. Pay attention to him." This is the kind of things that He says when adversity comes, when His whole world shattered. He worships. Can you do that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's easy to critique Job, but it's, uh, it's also amazing to marvel at him. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is, what is the meaning of glory? 
What does glory mean? <clears throat> Something's glorious. How does it become glorious? Deserving of praise. Okay, it's deserving of praise. All right. Valuable. It's valuable. Can you have praise? Can you have glory? I think the word literally means weight. Like it's heavy, something, substance. If all things are equal, if all things are the same, can you have praise? Something that is, um, something that excels, right? In more glory, something that's praiseworthy, something that's more heavy and more significant. I don't think you can. And I think the word indicates that there's a scale. Some things are glorious and some things are not. Some things are praiseworthy and some things are not. Some things are heavy and some things are not. And when we apply that to a moral category of Job's behavior and identity being a righteous man, you have to include... (laughs) You have to include the moral category of evil and darkness. For him to stand out as an example of light or righteousness, it is seen up against a backdrop of moral darkness. Does that make sense? All right. So let's broaden our scale. You get that with Job. Is that the way God displays glory in the world. What do you think? Is what way the way he displays glory? Putting Job up against a backdrop of moral darkness. Job stands out as an example of moral glory, beauty, light. Does God use the same method to display things that are glorious in the world? Always or sometimes? Either. Anytime. Anytime. Either. Yes, because Job is in the Bible. Okay. But doesn't that make us have a have a quandary of why could God not display his could God not display the glory of righteousness by not taking his entire family? Did he have to have a tree in the garden? I don't think. I think he did. I think that's the point of the question is that I think that they are necessities to the glory of God. I think for the human soul, different than an angel, to see God's glory and weight and beauty and to see things of glory and weight and beauty, they are often up against a backdrop of darkness and difficulty. Otherwise, we we don't have the vision to see how great they are. Any thoughts on that? Uh, but in the probationary period, if Adam had not sinned, right? I mean, I guess darkness would still exist, and then I could say he wasn't there, yeah. and so yeah. he defeated the darkness, right? So right. There was a tempter before the race of Adam fell. Right. We're also told that God had the cross planned before the foundations of the world were made. So I think the Bible instructs us to say that this is an intentional plan because it's a method that God uses, which is instructive in your own sufferings and instructive in world history. What do I mean by that? How how would that apply to your life? Would that give you any comfort that the artist demonstrates light on the canvas by drawing dark shades around it. Does that make sense? In other words, to draw out light, it has to be dark brush strokes that has to be used to see the light. To see the glory of the cross, I think we have to see the suffering of the cross. To see glory in our own lives. Does that bring you any comfort? Can you extrapolate that to any measure into your own sufferings? Does that give you comfort that God would not just give them to you at random, 
that he's not out of control, that things don't catch him off guard or by surprise, or his hands are bound and he's looking down from heaven wishing he could do something different, but he can't because he, he's impotent. He's not impotent. Jason? Well, as things get harder and the court gets darker and darker, that's all the more opportunity for light to shine the brighter. Okay. Absolutely. And yet we have a kind of a quandary in the Bible where evil needs to be rebuked, right? It's, yes. not, it's not claiming that it's a good. But it is allowed, and it does demonstrate God's glory. We're told in Romans 8 this. You may know the verse I'm talking about. Paul says, right? All things work together, but before that, he says, um, shoot, I'm going to get the, the, the order wrong. Um, we consider all things for good. Once, uh, shoot, 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 shoot. I'm going to get this back. Somebody pull up Romans 8. <laughs> Suffering and endurance and endurance and character and character for the glory of God. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 818. Go for it, Matt. Go from that. Go, go, yeah, just go for it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Yep. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children. It's a lot of what we've just been talking about here. For Paul, in his wisdom, is to say, hey, suffering, suffering displays the glory of God. Suffering as a Christian displays the glory of our testimony. Um, it seems that God uses this quite a bit. In his palette of things that he uses, this is a way that him demonstrates his glory, which is not a Christianese thing to go and pray when someone suffers and says, it's okay, I think God will use this for his good. That can be just like the thoughts and prayers kind of comment, but I think it's good theology to say that I know that my Redeemer lives and he will turn this for your good and for his glory. And Paul says even this, this suffering, I'm not sure what this will produce, and he uses the word we're talking about, the, an eternal weight of glory. C.S. Lewis has a, a section in Mere Christianity where he talks about how you become a Christian and you, you think God comes into your life, and he sort of cleans up the mess in your home, and he might put up some new drapes, and uh, put up some art, and just generally clean up and make a nice, pleasant home. And you're like, this is so great. Now that I'm a Christian, I feel so much cleaner now. And then all of a sudden, God takes a sledgehammer and knocks a wall out and starts renovating the bathroom. And his point is, is that you're, that's not Christianity, that God comes in and just tidies this up, is that he makes room for himself and he will live in nothing less than a castle. And he breaks down walls. He's breaking things that you're holding on to, idols, and he uses oftentimes it feels like suffering, but it's for his glory. Another thing is, <clears throat> um, at least a note, what time we got? Uh, it's 10 is that usually in scriptures, when you see an indication of a man being righteous, blinker on your dashboard, that man's about to suffer. <laughs> um, if in scripture the priest was to, to go take a spotless animal, which doesn't mean it's necessarily a perfect animal, but a spotless animal was fit for sacrifice, that is typically an indicator in the story that the man is also about to suffer, <clears throat> which might tell us a little bit about being righteous. You know, that's... In some ways, you go, oh, I don't know if I am going to be righteous. But Christ says, come and be like me. Come and follow me. And men who are made like them come and they take up crosses. To be a Christian is to take up and model sacrifice. That God does lay on your shoulders heavy burdens, oftentimes looking like Philippians 2. We're, we're told, it says, have this mind amongst yourself. Okay, so put this in your mind. This is your, the position you're supposed to have that Jesus Christ laid his life down. That is your Christian inheritance. And, and the, the verse in Philippians says that is why he is glorious, because of suffering. Um, yeah. I think the thing that's amazing with Job is he immediately says, yeah. God takes I think of when something horrible happens, it's a wrestling to get there. I mean, you know, a, the reverse of God can have prevented it. Why didn't he? Right? Mm. Can have intervened. Why did he let this happen? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would love to think that my instant response, and 
would be what Job was, but I found in tragedy in life that it takes time. Yeah. That's a good point. I think we're dealing. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, yeah, you're you're dealing you're dealing with a righteous man. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, he does use suffering. Uh, I have learned that I'm supposed to be praying for sin. So. <laughs> All right, we've got a few minutes left. I think we'll try to wrap up with um, sort of this theme of wisdom that pervades. This is in the sort of the collection of writings um, of, of, of wisdom literature with Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, Ecclesiastes, you know, it's, and then Job. <laughs> what am I supposed to learn from this? Uh, we're supposed to learn quite a bit. Right? It's a lesson that we, we understand is in the Bible and we often don't want to go back to and learn. Um, and a lot of the surrounding wisdom here, which by the way, I think 42 chapters, 46 chapters, and we're only in chapter 1. So, you know, we're, we certainly aren't going to move on. We're not going to be here next week either. Um, so we're not going to do 46 weeks, however many chapters on Job. But a lot of that middle section goes like this. It, it goes where these friends, or so-called friends, come to Job and they exhort him, you know, to repent or that surely he had done something wrong. And sometimes they have really wise, right things to say. They just say it in the wrong way. Um, and Job kind of responds to them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I think that happens four times. And then finally, out of the whirlwind, God speaks. And so you do have this sort of uh, repeated pattern in sort of the poetry of Job in that the suffering comes out of the whirlwind. God speaks in the whirlwind. Um, there's, there's kind of these different whirlwinds, and you can kind of sort of maybe in a simplistic way overlay that to the book of Job saying that there is confusion on wisdom. And the whole back and forth, the dialogues between Job and his friends and him being vindicated or being righteous and being unlike them is that he learns from the whirlwind. And actually, Job is rebuked at the end that he is a righteous man and he didn't sin, but he even begins to feel a little entitled to God, and God says, you know, he just kind of rips them in chapter 42. Who are you, O oh man? Did you make Orion? Did you make the Pleiades? Did you make these things? Who are you to ask me this question? It's very Romans 9. Is, can, the, can the clay say to the potter, you know, why are you making me this way? You can't. We are in his hands. But the good thing is, is that God's hands are good. That's what reading the story is about. It's, it's seeing the consistency of God's hands. He's not, he's not in it to destroy us. He's not in it to crush us. He's not in it to belittle us. He's, he's in it, like C.S. Lewis says, he's, he's not only cleaned up the house, but he's taken a sledgehammer to it, making us different people, making us more like himself. And even himself, he is not too grand to suffer. That's that whole point in Philippians 2 where he says he didn't, uh, he didn't think account, uh, equality with God was a thing to be grasped onto. Or Lord, like sort of like, I'm just entitled to this. I don't have to come and help you. He says, no, he didn't grasp onto his throne. He, he came to help. So even God's not above suffering. He is our model in all things. So we get this kind of wisdom back and forth, back and forth. And in our chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, if you guys picked up on this, um, is there's a sort of claim that Job, uh, Paul throws out, and it's a quote, a direct quote from Job 5. Uh, the quote is this, verse 11. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Um, in other words, it's sort of interesting how similar Job's friend's critique is to Paul's critique of the Corinthians. And I think it's important for me to kind of explain this point. In the Corinthians, what was happening? They, Paul was saying, when I come, I come as a servant. And it often means suffering because that's the ministry that we inherited from Christ. But you're here boasting as if suffering were too underneath you, right? And you boasted all these great theologians that you think you're connected to, but even us, we're, we're suffering for, for Christ. Um, in other words, the gospel is not this social advancement that you think it is. Job is sort of saying the same wisdom, He's saying that even though I'm suffering, don't call God a fool. That's, I mean, that's why Paul draws that verse. He says, even though I'm suffering, it's not, not that God has turned his back or God's arm is too short to save. 
Speaking of the whirlwind, there, there is wisdom in the whirlwind for Job. There's wisdom in the confusion. There's wisdom in the suffering. And it is how you respond to it. You can respond to it by being totally crushed, totally blindsided, totally twisted around and disoriented. And that happens. But his responses are instructive for us to say, even though I can't understand what's happening, it's a whirlwind as I know that my Redeemer lives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. And he withstands this, this trial. And he comes out of it um, for our instruction, a righteous man. So we do see this in Christ. Christ is the, the federal head, like we said earlier. He's the one who uh, doesn't cling on to that throne and in his entitlement. But he does come and he, like Job, praying for his children, takes responsibility for us. Right? Even suffering has its wisdom that we are to learn from. The wisest thing we learn from Corinthians, kind of to point back on here, one of the wisdom of, the, of God is the cross when the world thinks that's absolutely stupid. Um, why is the suffering God wisdom? And Paul says that's the only wisdom that we have um, is, is Christ crucified. I think that's a good place to end right there. Any questions about Job? Um, too big of a book for us to go all the way through. But. Any questions about that story? All right. Well, it's been a blessing to, to talk through that with you. Uh, let me pray for us. God, give us, give us righteousness. And I don't think we know what we're asking when we, when we ask that. Because we ask to be Job-like. To be able to pray. Right when things are taken out of our hands. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And... Give us wisdom in the whirlwind uh, when we can't see that we have seen enough of your hand. We have paid attention enough to who you are to have the ability to say, yes, all this is happening. It's very visceral. It's very immediate and present. It's all the scope of my, my peripheral vision, and yet I know the hand of God behind it is so good and that my Redeemer lives. And I know the ending of the story that I can withstand. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the blessings of, of life, that so much of it is good. Uh, you are not um, holding us uh, under uh, the heat lamp of affliction to purge us. And now it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. But help us not to, to apply that woodenly, uh, that there is suffering, great suffering. And if it's not in our community, it's in the world's. Help us to know that you are using it all for your glory and for your good. Help us to see where we can. In Christ's name, amen.